Hi, everyone. I'm Ashley Minogue from OpenView's expansion team, where I help software startups accelerate their revenue growth to build long-lasting companies. This season on Build, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I'll speak with tech executives and founders to hear firsthand how they've leveraged a product-led growth model to put product at the center of their acquisition, conversion, and expansion strategies to achieve a rapid and efficient scale. Now on with the show. Today, we're going to be talking about customer intimacy. Listening to your customers is how startups find product market fit, yet so many companies lose touch with their customers as they scale. I'm joined by Steli Efti, serial entrepreneur and CEO of Close.io. Steli, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So today, as you know, we're going to be talking about why listening to your customers is probably the most important thing a startup should do. But before we get into all of that, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit about my background. So I'm originally from Greece, born and raised in Germany. Oftentimes when I speak to people in the U.S., I say I have the best that Europe has to offer, right? I, the two ends of the cultural spectrum <laughs> in Germany, not that compatible, culturally speaking. So I, I, you know, I grew up as an immigrant kid in a factory worker family Dropped out of school when I was uh, fairly young to start my first uh, company, and, and and ever since then I've been an entrepreneur. So I never another way of saying this, a less charming way, is that I've never had a real job in my life. I have zero credentials, wouldn't be able to be hired by anybody. So I always had to start companies <laughs> to be employed. So I did a few businesses back in Europe, and then 13 years ago. I wanted to build a technology company for the first time. And so, you know, I sold everything I had. I bought a one-way ticket to San Francisco with the dream to, you know, build a massive tech company and change the world. So that first company, I don't want to ruin the suspense, but it didn't quite turn out the way I (laughs) I thought it would. It became kind of a five-year painful failure. And after that really valuable experience, I started a bunch of other projects and, and eventually I started working with uh, a friend of mine on something that turned out to be also through a few twists and turns turned out to be the company that I'm running today, Close.io. It's clear you're very passionate about building businesses. Can you tell us more about your latest one, Close.io? Yeah. So we originally, the idea was to help startups, especially kind of venture-backed startups that were uh, in B2B to help them find predictable and scalable sales models, and then scale that for them. So we were really a services business where you could outsource your sales problems to, and you could outsource your your sales team to. And so we work with over 200 venture-backed startups in the span of two years to help them figure out scalable sales models and processes, and then hire salespeople for them and build out their kind of outsourced sales teams. That was kind of the big idea. And during that time, we were... We sort of created unknowingly kind of a, a lab, a sales lab in the heart of Silicon Valley, kind of figuring out how to do sales for new companies, for startups, for, for technology businesses. In the process of learning a ton about how to develop these sales models and all that, we also started building an internal piece of software, never with the intention to pivot into a technology. Uh, today, a lot of times, services businesses will have this goal that eventually they want to become a tech company. And so they're building internal products with the, with the idea to pivot. 
that was never our intention. We just hated the sales software that was out there at the time. I was the first salesperson we were renting out. So I didn't want to use, uh, you know, terrible software for nine hours of my day. And then my two co-founders were technical. So we're like, well, why don't we build internal software that will help our salespeople outperform their competition, that will help us retain great sales talent because we're giving them software that's awesome and that helps them succeed. And that was the whole idea. There was not any... You know, this was very fluffy as a vision. We really didn't know what all that meant. But then because of the unique circumstances of how we were running, kind of there was a huge sales floor and we had all these different teams doing sales for very different companies. And we had our engineering team in the middle of that room, right? So our, our engineering team and our developers, they would interact a tremendous amount with the sales team that would see all day long what they did. What, the, what their workflows looked like. And they had a very high both sales IQ for developer team and engineering team and also a high empathy level for, for these salespeople because they were their friends. And eventually through that unique kind of development environment, the software started to become better and better and better. We started to develop a really strong point of view of what we thought good sales software was, what the future of sales software should look like. And eventually the software became really strong and people started commenting on it being something that's really valuable and something we should offer to other companies as well. And then in January 2013, we decided, you know what, you know, we have this sales software that really helps salespeople to close more deals, to make more sales. It's a very kind of inside sales focused CRM that's very strong on the communication part of things. Let's release it as a small side project and just see what happens. And honestly, if today, this is January 2013. So if today the story was we had a really great piece of software, but nobody cared, right? It just nobody bought the thing. That would make total sense to me because it's such a crowded space with so many options, so many competitors. So when we released the software, we really we thought we had something brilliant when it came to the, the product, but we were, you know, not naive in the sense of thinking just because the product is great, we're going to succeed with this. We thought, you know what, this market is so competitive. Who knows what it takes to succeed here? Let's release it. It's a small team that's working on it. And let's just see what happens with no, not that much of uh, pressure. And then funny enough, we hit a nerve in the market and, and, you know, the first few months were great. And then they, every month kept being better and better and better. And within think about nine months or so, it was clear that the software would outgrow the services business in terms of revenue, although it had a tiny team attached to it. And we realized, wow, all right, we have a winner here and this is the future of the company and something we should focus on. So a year later, we had shut down and transitioned out of the services business and fully focused on the software side of things. And that's the company that we're running and growing today. We're an inside sales CRM for kind of small and medium-sized businesses with thousands of customers all around the world. We generate millions and millions of revenue every year. We're highly profitable. And we're a tiny team for our space. We're just 30 people, fully remote, 11 different countries, and having a hell of a fun uh, running this <laughs> business. So that's kind of the, the background story from how we started to where we ended up today. That's great. The software has certainly taken off. So tell us about your go-to-market strategy. What did it look like when you were first launching it and how has it evolved today? Yeah, that's a great question. So a few things, right? So we were in a unique position in the sense that we had run this services business for a while. So we had established ourselves a little bit, at least in a small little bubble in the Bay Area. We had a little bit of a reputation as being sales experts. And we knew a lot of startups that were hiring salespeople and growing their sales efforts. And we knew a lot of startups that were struggling with sales. So 
when we launched with a, a small little circle that was quite powerful that we were able to give first access to the software and get feedback from kind of have a, a good starting point. But when we thought about how do we broadly market this piece of software, especially in such a crowded space, we really, I mean, we did a very simple exercise. Honestly, we just went through all the marketing channels and we asked ourselves, not just like, what are all the other CRM businesses doing, right? How do they market their product? But we asked ourselves instead, can we do it better than the competition, right? Can we play to win in any of those channels versus just playing to play? It was very, and that, if you think about it that way, it made a lot of decisions very easy for us, right? So we looked at paid advertisement and we were like, there's no way we're going to play to win here. There's no way we're going to outspend and out advertise our competition. So we just took it off the table. We're like, let's not worry about this at all. If we cannot win and dominate in this channel, let's not worry about it at all. And then we went through the list. It was like, all right, how are we going to out PR our competition? Nah, I don't think so. PR is not really our thing. We don't have deep expertise in this. And so we went through the list and we crossed out a bunch of stuff. And then we ended up at content marketing. And back in the day when we, you know, this is January 2013, so this is a, a, a while ago, when we went in, in January 2013, when we went through all the sales blogs that were out there and CRM companies that had white papers and videos and content, we looked at all that stuff and we ignorantly and arrogantly thought all this stuff stinks, right? <laughs> this, this content is terrible. No real, like we would never read this. This is not compelling. This is not up to date. It reads like it was written in the 80s. A lot of it was very search engine optimized. So it was like content that was great for search engines to rank you high. But it was not the type of content that I would read and be like, wow, I have to come back and read more of this list of 400 tips that are so superficial, they mean nothing, right? So it's like, it was a lot of this type of stuff out there. So we said, all right, this is it. We believed that we had a unique point of view, that we had amassed an incredible amount of expertise and interesting stories and tactics doing all these different sales campaigns for all these different companies. And we thought that we had better content skills and storytelling skills that most of these competitors had when it came to content. So that's what we focused on. We said, all right, we're going to out-teach our competition. We're going to out-content them. We're going to focus on this one channel and do it better than everybody else. And the aim is going to be to win and not just to participate in this marketing channel. And that's it. That's how we started. We started, you know, we launched a blog and we started writing on that blog and, and people started liking these posts and sharing them and coming back and being turning into a, a real audience that came back regularly because they wanted to learn from us. They wanted to read our stuff. And that was how we started. And funny enough, you know, whenever we talked about all the other things we wanted to do to grow the company, we we're always like, well, there's still so much to do on the content side, but soon, probably next year, we're going to have to start figuring out new channels. You know, six years later, content is still the only channel that we're <laughs> really playing. And it's the one of the two ways that people find out about us. It's word of mouth from existing customers, and it's uh, our content. Those are the channels that drive all our inbound traffic and all our customers, basically, the, the top of our funnel. It's amazing. Really proves the point that if you stay focused on one or two channels, you can really get the most out of them. So you hit on this, that CRM is obviously a crowded space. 
And it seems like your content has certainly been something that has helped you guys differentiate yourselves in the market. What other tips do you have for people trying to stand out in a crowded market? So first of all, I think that every market is increasingly becoming a crowded market, right? Um, I've never <laughs> competition met... is a good thing. There you go. But I've never met an entrepreneur that was like, oh, there's no competition in our space. Like we're <laughs> the only ones. At least that's very rare. It used to be a thing, but I don't, I don't see that often. Most of the startups that I talk to, they're like, oh my God, we're the most competitive space there is. I'm like, well, no, but okay. <laughs> but so, yeah, what do you have to do to stand out? I think, I think it really comes back to, to a certain degree to what we're really hinted on, which is, you know, in order to stand out in, in, in today's world, I think that you need to be more focused right? And, and to be more focused, it's not just about figuring out what you want to say yes to, but it's in many ways equally or even more important sometimes to figure out what you're going to say no to, right? And really develop a strong point of view, which then develops a strong voice, a strong voice, a strong point of view that will reflect the way you build your product, that will reflect the way that you're going to market the product, the way you're going to service your customers, the way you sell to them, the way you support them, and ultimately the way they feel about using your product, being your customer, interacting with you in the wild or with your content or with whatever. And it creates your brand, your rep, basically your business reputation, the, the way that people think, talk, and feel about you. And, you know, this is all high-level stuff. Well, how do you break this down to something practical? I think that as a, especially as a new company, you just have to ask yourself, what do we stand for? What do we stand against? Because it's easy to stand for things. It's easy to say yes to things, right? Mm -hmm. But it's much harder to say no to certain things, especially in the early days. That focus really creates differentiation, right? Because when, when every, most companies will just try to do everything. And, and so they become, you have more and more of these companies that are impossible to differentiate because they all have sort of the same feature sets. They all have the same pricing. Their websites look kind of similar. Their content is, it's everything sort of the same. It's kind of hard for me to differentiate what is the difference here and why should I care about being one a customer of one of them or the other. Um, so in that, in, in that crowded market where most of your competition is just going to copy what everybody else is doing, if you say no to a lot of the things that everybody does and then double down on a few things, it's really going to make you stand out. And I'll give you a, a, a simple example to this. You know, from the early days, we didn't just have a roadmap for the product, like here's the things we want to build. We always also had an anti-roadmap. Here are the things we're never going to build, mm -hmm. right? And that's a really hard exercise to, to make. Much easier to have a roadmap, you know, 10 years from now, all the cool stuff that you want to build. It's a very hard discussion to have internally when you're like, all right, what do we put on our anti-roadmap? What are the things we're not going to build, right? What are the things that just don't focus enough on our core audience and our core promise that don't fit into our point of view, into the type of customer we want to serve, which is another thing, right? Uh, most companies just want to serve all the customers, all the people on the planet, which is awesome. But that if you want to start like that, again, it leads to an undifferentiated product and undifferentiated marketing and branding if you start by saying, okay, let's ignore most of the people and find a niche, find a type of customer that is underserved right now that we understand better than others, that we can serve better than others, that will lead to your product going in a very different direction that leads to your marketing being different, your branding being different, and then you're going to stand out, not for everybody, but for a certain type of person and customer. And that's how you start. You go very focused into the market and 
as you grow and become bigger and bigger and bigger, you might have to broaden this eventually. But the best way to stand out, I think, is to say no to a lot of things, to understand what is our point of view, who is our customer, what do we stand for, what do we stand against, and be brave in those convictions because they need some level of, they, they, they involve a lot of risk. It's, it's, it's risky to say no to things. To surround this up, I'll give an example that seemed crazy at the time. When we launched Close, we knew our customers are going to be inside sales teams, right? So salespeople that sell predominantly through the phone, through email, through doing you know live online screen sharing demos, like people that sell through their office, not people that go out field sales teams that go out knocking on doors, right? That's not our main use case. That's not our customer. Since we knew that, we knew that a mobile app, although when we launched, mobile app was like the thing and everybody in SaaS and B2B was like mobile first. And if you're not mobile first, you're not going to have any future in the, the future of software business and all that. It was a huge hype around being mobile first as a startup. And we, we looked at who we wanted to serve and we were like, well, it makes no sense for us to build a mobile app if we're focused on inside sales teams. Let's just put this on the back burner and let's focus on all the things that, that inside sales teams really need and inside salesperson really needs. And the mobile thing would be a nice to have, but it's just not a priority. And I remember people laughing at us like when we launched saying, you don't even have a mobile app. Like you have no future. Like you guys are, like you're ridiculous. You're young people and you're launching without a mobile app. What's wrong with you, right? And this is crazy, but six years later, we still don't have a mobile app, right? And again, it's not that we don't want to at some point, but in the ranking of priorities, it was just never the most important thing. And we built a very big business without having a mobile app. So it's that kind of a choice that seems really, it seemed really risky at the time. People were laughing at us. People were emailing us saying how ridiculous we are, that we'll never succeed. And you need to have strong convictions when you do the, when you say no to things. And, and so I think that that's the most important thing in order to build a brand, in order to build a reputation and, and, and compete successfully in a crowded market. But it's also a really tough thing to do. I agree. There's certainly trade-offs that need to be made. And something that probably makes trade-offs or making those decisions a bit easier is really having insight to what your customers want and what's important to them. And I know customer intimacy is something you guys have written about and you've talked about. So at Close.io, you've definitely learned firsthand there's a right and a wrong way to listen to and incorporate customer feedback. Can you share your experiences there? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I do think that uh, the only authority that matters and that should matter to you in your business are your customers, right? What do they think? What do they feel? What do they need? Experts, what everybody's doing, the market, all that stuff is cool, but the only and the highest authority should always be your customers. So you have to invest in intimacy, and intimacy means spending time with them, having dinner with them, having meetups, visiting your customers at their offices, and seeing your software in the wild being used in real-life scenarios. You need to do these, like, quote-unquote, unscalable things to be close to your customers to generate insights and truly a true level of understanding of what they really need. But you can also make you know m mistakes with that, and we certainly have done our fair share of it. And, and one funny thing that happened, just because we we're not as aware of it was that you know we when you think about stakeholders like when, when i think about enterprise level sales and we don't sell to the enterprise we don't sell to massive organizations but if you think about enterprise sales you instantly know that there's going to be many different stakeholders with different opinions and different motivations and so you that makes the whole sales cycle really complex so you have to be really aware of that when you sell to very small customers well small businesses and medium-sized businesses 
many companies don't necessarily think of all the different stakeholders involved, even in that sale, even in a sale of like a company that's just 10 people strong, you have different stakeholders with different intentions and motivations and all that. And we never really differentiated. We always thought of our, our customers as one unit. And then eventually, you know, we decided, you know what, we want to even invest more into our customers and the relationship. Let's build a success team. Let's build a team that proactively reaches out even to our small customers, trains them, helps them solve problems for them and learns from them. And, and so we, we built this success team with the best of intentions, right? With having even more customer intimacy and doing even more good, good, good work for our customers. And one funny thing that happened as a kind of unintended consequence was that the success team, we didn't set the guidelines in place. That team just asked themselves, all right, we can reach out to every customer individually. So how do we prioritize this? Well, let's go to our biggest customers first. And then a customer that has 100 users on our platform can't talk to every user individually. So who do we talk to? Let's talk to the person that purchased the software, right? The admin, the manager, the person at the top. And so they started talking to more and more administrators and managers within our customer base and they started collecting the kind of feedback that these type of users had and they became they built a, a megaphone for these type of users and all of a sudden magically our roadmap became less and less focused on who we had originally intended to be our core stakeholder which is the individual sales rep all of a sudden, our roadmap became more and more focused on the sales manager and the VP of sales and what they need and what they want and what features they require. And what we saw was a funny trend where when we looked at our NPS scores, the managers got happier and happier, but the sales reps, again, that is the stakeholder we always intended to serve best, right? Software built by salespeople for salespeople. We really wanted to focus on the salespeople because everybody else in our market was focused on the sales managers and the people that were buying the software. And all of a sudden, we, we saw that the core user that we wanted to serve best became unhappy and unhappier with our software. And it took us a while to realize, wait a second, this is because we've never differentiated between the different stakeholders, there's a developer that needs to integrate the CRM software. There's maybe the owner of the business or the founder that buys it. There's a sales manager and then there's the salespeople. And of course, we want to help all the stakeholders within our customer base, but this, there needs to be a prioritization. And once we realized that, it helped us, A, give our success team kind of a better orientation and a better roadmap on how to do their job really well and how to communicate user feedback and customer feedback, but it also really helped us in the way we develop our roadmap now, product roadmap, to not just say, what do customers want, but to differentiate who is the voice from those customers, right? Who are we listening to and how do we prioritize that? So it was a funny thing where we invested to be closer to our customer, but because we, we didn't differentiate well enough within our customer base, we started building all the wrong things or the things that didn't really matter as much to the core stakeholder that we wanted to serve. And we started building things that made people less happy, not more happy with us. And I'm sure that happens more often than not. So many businesses are are forced to, you know, they've only gotten so many resources and they want to get in touch with a customer. So many often default to that buyer or that admin on the account. So now that you've learned this lesson and experienced it firsthand, what are some best practices for how startups and businesses can 
collect customer feedback at scale from the users, the masses? So I think it all starts with identifying your stakeholders, right? Just differentiating a little bit. Just like you would segment in marketing, you would segment different channels and different types of leads that are coming into your business. You want to segment your customers, you know, not just the big ones, the mid-sized ones and the small ones. So you can segment customers by size or by how much money they pay you, but you can also within your customer segment the different user types. And then one very simple thing to do is you, you know, you can en masse pay attention to the different user types and how they use the product, right? What features, what things, what usage habits and patterns do certain type of users have versus just averaging out between everybody that has an account with a customer? You can do the same thing with service, right? You could automatically send service. It doesn't matter if it's an NPS or some other type of survey that you send and you have people select what kind of a user they are within the organization and kind of what feedback they have for you. So you segment by service that you do. Then it's also like sometimes I think that awareness level can make a big difference, but a beautiful thing, a magical thing coming back to customer intimacy that can happen when you spend time, actual physical time with your customers. I'm a big advocate. I've always been screaming to people that they need to go and visit their customers. And it seems like such a huge time sink. And it's, oh my God, like visiting one customer, it's going to take half of my day. And I could answer 30 more emails if I didn't do that. But then when you visit customers, one magical thing that happens is that I'll, usually you'll be, you know, welcomed by the founder or the sales manager, or some, somebody like that. You sit down and you talk about their business and their lives. And then you talk about your product and the software and what's good and bad about it. And they'll give you a, their feedback from their point of view. And then they'll give you a filtered, like, this is what the team says or what other people say in the company. And then what I always ask is if I can just walk around and meet like our users, right? In, the, in our case, it's the sales team. It's magical sometimes, you know, sales manager would tell me, well, everybody loves the software. Everything is great about the software. We are gung-ho. This is, there's no negative feedback. Now I'll go, well, can I just walk around and say hi to a few people? Yeah. And I'll, I'll go into the sales room and I'll, I'll tap some salespeople and be like, hey, I also, I see on your screen, you have Close.io. I work at that company. Any feedback for us? And, and you'll get something like, oh my God, I hate this thing that you guys do. <laughs> Right. And you'll get all this like really unfiltered, <laughs> intense feedback that's completely different from what you just heard in the boardroom, right? Or in the meeting room. So that, you know, that can be the reality can be really good medicine for all our bad ideas, all our misconceptions. So A, you should identify the stakeholders, I think, within your customer base, no matter how small the type of customers that you're serving, there is differentiating factors. And the more where you are, the better you're going to be able to serve your customer and categorize their feedback. And you can do that by noticing how they use the product, by serving them and asking them questions. But once in a while, it's a really healthy exercise to just visit a customer. You know, Just watch people use your product in their natural habitat, right? In their office. And just notice everything else, the context within where your software, your product lives can be incredibly illuminating. And then going around and talking to all kinds of people versus just talking to the, the bosses or the founders who have invited you to visit can be incredibly useful. I love that. I feel like nothing beats seeing your customers using your product in their own natural environment and really catching them in the day-to-day of it. Amen. So you've shared a ton about customer intimacy, but thinking more broadly, what would be your number one piece of advice for an entrepreneur launching a SaaS business? I hate that I have to come back, but this is the theme of this podcast. So I'll come <laughs> back to this piece of advice. My number one piece of advice would be 
to decide what you're going to say yes to, what you're going to say no to, and to be focused. And to be focused, you need to learn to say no, especially in the beginning as you're launching your SaaS company. There's an overwhelming amount of things you could be doing, right? And usually in the beginning, SaaS founders or founders in general are a little less confident in their own choices. So that lack of confidence makes us look around and go, well, what did all these other people do that are successful? Let me just do everything they're doing. And not that that's never the right way to go, that that, that cannot work at all. But the most successful SaaS companies that are launching today that I'm observing and talking to and advising, they decided, all right, here are all the available options what are the few things we're going to do? Because we're small, we can't do everything. So we have to do a few things, but do them really insanely well and do them a lot and do them consistently every day and really push hard. You can create a lot of noise in a single small channel if you're just on it every day, pushing, creating value, creating noise, creating connections. And you can become, you know, you can create a lot of success that way. And then eventually, as your team grows, as your company grows, as your product grows, you add channels, you add things to the plate. But in the beginning, I've never seen a SaaS company launching where I felt like they're too focused. They need to go broader. <laughs> uh, it's always yeah. the opposite. It's always they're too broad. They're trying too many things. Hence why they're not creating any momentum. They don't have any traction on any one of these things. So my advice would just be, be more focused be a little bit braver and kill the fear of missing out. Don't look around what everybody else is doing every minute of every hour because you're not going to accomplish anything. Pick a channel you think you can win, be fully committed to it, and then really hammer that nail day in, day out, day in, day out. And after you know a week, a month, a year, you're going to see a lot of traction and momentum and building on top of that, you're going to be able to expand and do other things as well. Definitely. That certainly resonates with OpenView's philosophy as well. Well, Sally, I want to say thank you for joining me. It's been great hearing your perspective and more about your background and your company's journey. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators and founders every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Or you can follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture. Until next time.